This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. In today's episode, I'm discussing contemporary challenges in adolescent mental health with Dr. Michael Cargreg, child and adolescent psychologist. Dr. Michael Cargreg is one of Australia's highest profile psychologists. He's the author of 14 books, broadcaster and a specialist in corporate mental health, families, parenting, child and adolescent psychology and the use of technology for mental health. And he's a mental health advocate. Welcome, Michael, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight and a very important topic we're discussing today. Michael, you work in private practice at Camberwell Medical Practice in Melbourne. You're the Commonwealth Government Representative on the board of the Australian Children's Television Foundation, an accredited trainer of Mental Health First Aid Australia, a community ambassador for Smiling Mind, Big Brother, Big Sister, a patron of Read the Play, a columnist for a number of publications and the resident parenting expert on Channel 7 Sunrise, as well as top-rating morning show with Neil Mitchell on Fairfax Radio 3AW. So you see adolescent and young people's mental health all the time. What can you tell us is so important these days? Well, I think the big issue is that the prevalence is so high. We're talking about one in four in high schools and one in seven in primary schools. There's a very high level of stigma and a profound lack of knowledge around mental illness. So what I call emotional literacy is quite low. I think there's a reluctance to seek help. Only about a third of young people with psychological problems actively seek help. And of course, the problem is that when you do have the common mental health problems of anxiety or depression, it interferes with their key developmental tasks. And that's astonishing given we now have the shadow pandemic of mental health issues following the lockdown's COVID pandemic. So we know mental health issues are enormous problems now, and yet there's still a stigma in adolescent and children and I guess even their parents looking for treatment. Or is it, as you say, quite often that adolescents don't often outwardly express their mental health problems either? Well, I think there are a number of points. One is the pandemic did I think, impact on young people disproportionately. One in four young Australians thought about suicide over the past two years and 15% actually attempted some form of self-harm according to one particular research project which just looked at 16 to 24-year-olds. We know that presentations to emergency departments for mental health problems like anxiety, depression, non-suicidal self-injury and eating disorders absolutely skyrocketed, 40, 50, 60% increase depending on which particular figures you look at. So there was a bit of a problem with youth mental health before the pandemic. Now we're really talking about stratospheric levels and, of course, a completely inadequate workforce to deal with it. Yes, because the wait times for psychologists now, particularly in Victoria, are so high, even if people do reach out for help. 
Yeah, I mean, we've really got an interesting situation now. We've got an under-resourced mental health system, which has been overwhelmed. We've got general practice and headspaces inundated. The emergency departments are flooded with demand. The mental health workforce is dwindling and exhausted. And while telehealth keep the channels kind of partially open, I think the care has become detached, dispersed and diluted. I think we've got a major problem on our hands. We do. We've got major burnout in all types of health practitioners. As you're saying, it was on the rise before the pandemic as well. And these are such vulnerable times for the young, the children and adolescents in particular. And as you said, there's so little known about the long-term mental health effects of such a large-scale disease outbreak on children and adolescents. Is there any early research that we're seeing other than these skyrocketing mental health problems? Is there any, are there any trends of how we can help teens? I think there are four areas which are problematic. One is their peer relationships were profoundly impacted on when particularly many of them in my state of Victoria were in lockdown. Mm. So their socialization was disrupted. So we had two years where they really couldn't do the sorts of things that they needed to do. So coming mm. back to school has not only made a disengagement with learning, but it's also meant very significant difficulties in socializing. And I've heard some schools, uh, for example, have had to call in the police to deal with the online harassment that has been going on. And there's really been a reluctance by schools to really focus on their academics because they're so worried about the socialization. There's also problems in families because the psychological emancipation that one would normally expect in young people hasn't been able to happen in the way that it should because they were all stuck at home. And I also think that the kind of number one task of adolescence, which is forming your identity, figuring out who you are, that's been interrupted as well. Major disruption. So the developmental effect on adolescence is going to be enormous. Do you think it's maybe even worth comparing to war times that the effect that's happening on adolescents from the pandemic. It's an interesting point. Pat McGorry and Ian Hickey predicted early on in the, I think it was about May 2020, they did some modelling with the Medical Journal of Australia and they predicted that there would be a significant increase in completed suicide. Mm. They said the worst possible scenario was a doubling of the suicide rate, which would have meant an extra 1,500 people a year. And the best possible scenario, they said, was a 25% increase, which means 750. As it turned out, we didn't see a rise in suicide. In fact, we saw a drop. Mm. And a lot of people are making a parallel between that and wartime. So you, mm -hmm. your observation is extremely astute because in wartime, suicide rates go down because we have a mutual enemy and we all pull together as a society and kind of support one another. I think there was quite a bit of that going on, particularly in the eastern states, and therefore I wasn't surprised when the suicide rate didn't go up, but I am totally and utterly convinced, as the OECD is, that the hidden pandemic is a youth mental health pandemic 
and that's one that we really need to address at the moment. I'm afraid I'm not seeing any government enthusiasm for the sort of measures that I think are necessary. Totally necessary. And as you say, while they may be only 17% of the population, they are 100% of our future. So it's vital that government pay attention to this enormous public health problem. Yeah, I mean, we could start by, for example, raising the Medicare rebate to at least $150 so that people wouldn't be so out of pocket with the normal rebate. That would be one really good start that I think they could make. The second thing is I think that we need to increase the workforce. There are about 6,000 provisional psychologists who should be put on re on the normal mental health care plans, that rebate, because that would immediately relieve the tremendous pressure that's on psychologists at the moment. In some parts of rural Victoria, they're telling me that they have to wait almost two years oh. to see a psychologist. It's insane. It is. So we need to do something about workforce and we need to do it quickly. Absolutely. This is a crisis and perhaps on par to war times and crisis management's needed. Yep. So the increased need for parents and teachers to monitor young people's mental health, as you say, needs to be now over the long term. We need to be vigilant. So I guess increased education, government funding education through schools, through other resources to help us to identify adolescent mental health issues when often, as you say, it turns to bullying, to cyber bullying and online bullying instead of actually admitting that they have problems and need help. Well, I think the early identification and prompt treatment of these young people is essential. One of the reasons why I'm an enthusiast for mental health first aid, particularly youth mental health first aid, is if we can train up people in schools to recognise these problems and make a referral, that would be great. Yep. The difficulty with that little plan, of course, is who do you refer to? Yeah. And at the moment, most of my clients are being managed by me and a GP and usually with the help of some medication, to be honest with you, which yeah. is not generally the way I roll, but you can't get them to see a psychiatrist. So you have to trust the GPs that you're working with. And generally that's holding it, I think, together. But we need to do a lot better. And we need to destigmatize the mental health issues because if medication is going to carry a lot of these adolescents through the current backlog time of needing support where there is no support to really recover from the pandemic, then that needs to be normalized in some way, I guess, for these abnormal times. It does. I also think we need to have a major emphasis on resilience building. Yes. There's some really excellent work that has been done historically. We know the things that would increase resilience in a young person. So we need to do a lot of parent education. About a third of parents are saying that they really don't have the confidence to parent, particularly teenagers. So we need to do a lot more in the parent education space. And I think the governments could step up. Queensland's done something quite interesting. They've made the Triple P Parenting Program free in all state schools in Queensland. I think we should do that across Australia.
Absolutely. And if parents are teaching resilience, yes, it takes a different form for teens than adults, but they're still learning themselves about their own resilience. So there's an incentive to be teaching their kids, not just for their kids, but for themselves, that it's a global need that we all have now for increased resilience and increased pushback on organisations to do their part as well. That's, of course, part of burnout treatment, that we're not just resilient, we're, we're getting resources as needed as well. Yeah, I have seen some organisations do some outstanding stuff in this space and there are organisations that have been acutely aware of the fact that their referrals to EAPs, for example, is way below the level expected. So there's been some amazing work done by, for example, PwC, who trained up a lot of their partners to become mental health champions and then had this open door policy where anyone in the organization could come in and talk to these particular mental health champions, all of whom had had lived experience with mental health problems, all of whom had made videos which went on their intranet. And I thought, you know how the fish stinks from the head? If you've got the head basically saying, all these senior partners saying, hey, I had mental health problems, I dealt with it, come and talk to me, I'll show you the right way to, to go. That will be a marvellous thing if we could have that across the board in all major corporations across Australia. In corporations that then young men and women look up to as future employers and see that it's normalised, that humans are humans, where no matter what walk of life you end up in as a career, we're all at risk of mental illness. We are indeed. One in five, in fact, I think is the latest statistic. But yeah, I see. that would be good. Absolutely. Well, I think if we expand on how parents who might be listening to this podcast can ask the right questions of teens to find out how they're really travelling. I think there's three questions that I love them to ask. And one is to open up with saying something like, hey, I've noticed whatever it is that they've noticed. Then follow that up with, look, are you okay? And then follow that up with, help me understand a little bit more about that because that's a beautiful phrase which doesn't assume anything but actually mm. invites a conversation. And then I think the last phrase that can work really well for parents is once they their young person has told them something, they could then say to them, oh, so what you're saying is, and a nice little paraphrase, the way we're taught as psychologists to do in micro-counselling skills. And I think that conversation needs to be on high rotation between parents and their teenagers so that we can actually get a sense of where they are. So those four phrases I'm a fan of. And when you say high rotation, do you mean frequently asking these questions? I think what you do, obviously you'd ask them if there's a need, but if they kind of say, no, 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 I'm fine and you're still worried, then mm. I would want you to go back to the well and have the conversation again. Yeah, and a lot of adolescents, of course, really resist going to a GP. So how would a parent, if they feel and figure that their child really is in need of medication or seeking treatment if possible with a psychologist, how would they get them to, to actually receive that help? Well, I think with the GPs, it's really interesting. I think the backbone of adolescent mental health care in Australia is, in fact, through the GP. Mm. And the way I present this to my kids was that when you start high school, 
it's really important that you develop a relationship with your GP. You have a general checkup. You get your own set of notes. You get your own Medicare card. You yep. basically have someone who you go to and I think setting that up as a rite of passage mm-hmm. in the same way that we're terribly excited about getting our own driver's license, I think establishing a good relationship with the GP is a major, major step in the right direction. And then the GP, depending on their skill base, can either deal with the young person themselves or make a referral on a mental health care plan to someone like me. Yes, and others that have their books still open. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Good point. (laughs) Well, at the moment, of course, you know, I I think it's so incredibly tight that every time I run a youth mental health first aid course in a school, and I've run three in the last couple of months, I always feel guilty because what I'm doing is increasing the detection rate Mm. of these young people. But I kind of know in my heart of hearts that certainly the service provision is less than optimal, particularly if you're not on private health insurance and you're not living in an affluent suburb. Well, what about, and I'm sure you're already thinking of this, training adolescents up to be some of those mental health first aid people for their own cohort? Well, there is, in fact, a teen mental health first aid course. Many, many schools are now using it. The results are amazing, the evidence-based results If you go to Google Scholar and look up teen mental health first aid training impact of, you'll see that that particular course, which I just trained in the other day, I haven't actually delivered any yet, but I'm now a person who can give it. It's over three particular sessions and they break it into two. There's a sort of year seven, year nine cohort, and then there's a year 10, year 12, two different courses but apparently it increases their level of awareness, their willingness to help other people and their willingness to talk about youth mental health. So that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, and their social competency and the feeling that they can actually make a difference in a world where they might be down because they don't feel that there's much of a difference being made. So their, their sense of agency, their sense of empowerment, their maturing, finding their identity, All these great benefits can come from that. And then parents seeing that their kids are being proactive in their own mental health, but in a way that helps others and empowers them to be starting to make a difference. So, Yeah, look, I think what schools need to realise in particular is that young people are like an aeroplane and that there's two wings. The school is one wing, but the Mm -hmm. parents are the other. So you've actually got to make sure that you're not just flying on one wing because Mm. if you do, you just go around in circles and eventually going to crash. So that's the first thing. The second thing is schools need to invest a lot of time and energy in the well-being of young people, particularly around sleep, diet and exercise because those three areas are really appalling at the moment when you look at the literature. Schools need to do more in those areas because if you don't have well-being, you don't have learning. And that's basically what the business they're in. So we've got to get that message across. And I would urge all psychologists, anyone listening to this, to go to their school and ask, what are you doing around sleep hygiene? What are you doing around the food mood connection? What are you doing around exercise? I'm sure a lot of schools would be thrilled to hear about this mental health first aid practice that they could adopt 
that includes all of those measures as well, so that they can maybe get some funding resources brought in and take the load off them and inform them as to how to help their students in this area that, as you say, is clearly a drawback on education. Funding is tight. I've, I've seen a couple of neat models where the local Rotary Club raises the money to actually pay for those courses. And I like that model, the community kind of stepping in and really making a difference in schools. Especially for retired people who want to be of value and to help. There's a great opportunity for retired people in Rotary and other organisations to really make a difference, get involved in this mental health first aid idea back into schools for younger adolescent people who are the future. Well, they are. And I guess that if I had my way, I'd want all the year-level coordinators in every school in Australia trained up as having a mental health first aid certificate. That's the first thing. Mm. I'd want the year-levels, obviously, to do the teen mental health first aid course. And I guess I'd also like to see some state government funding for these initiatives because at the moment... There's just not enough money going in and we've got to make a difference now and we've got to use evidence-based programs, which all of these are. Wonderful. And we're going to save ourselves a lot of money and heartache in the future if we do. We are. I think you should be the next Premier of the state, actually, <laughs> if I could say, if you're not doing anything. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Matt might have a bit of spare time for that, Michael. <laughs> or not. <laughs> So any other extra tips for teens themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, I'm particularly fond of some online preventative stuff. So don't know if you're familiar with the Cognitive Behavioural Therapy online program called Mood Gym that was created by ANU about 20 years ago. And it's had a couple of facelifts. It's really fantastic in terms of, helping young people understand the basic principle that you can't really have a feeling without first having a thought. Yeah. And that if you actually start paying attention to the types of things that you're saying to yourself and you have the ability to challenge those things and replace them with more healthy thinking, we can really forestall a lot of the anxiety and depression that plagues our young people. And, of course, cognitive behavioural therapy is so evidence-based. It's wonderful. We're so lucky to have this tool. And, yes, that wonderful gym for teens is something definitely we need to direct teens to. Yeah, teens can do. No, that's brilliant. And the other one is the BRAVE program for anxiety, which, as you know, is the most common psychological problem in young people. The BRAVE program was invented by the University of Queensland. It's online, it's free, and it's also evidence-based. And there's one for little kids and there's one for teenagers. And there's even a program within the Brave program for parents. So I strongly recommend that as well. All wonderful resources. And I think they're free, aren't they? They are completely free. Completely. So it's just a matter of spending the time, investing in your mental health and that of your adolescents and children. And again, save yourself a lot of time, heartache and money in the future. Yes. (laughs) Very wise. And grief is one of the other things you talk about, grief in adolescence and how it plays out. I guess there's a lot of grief around the lockdowns and lost opportunities, lost rites of passage that teens didn't go through at the end of, for example, primary school and leaving high school. There was a lot of loss in all of those things. There was. I think there are two components of that. One is disappointment, and there was a lot of disappointment. And I think we're not very good 
at teaching our young people how to handle disappointment. I've always seen disappointment as a practice lap for adulthood. And I think that parents need to help young people deal with disappointment, not by ignoring it, but by getting them to express how they're feeling, Mm. validating that, but not allowing them to marinate in that disappointment, Mm. helping them to reframe it and then move on. As far as grief is concerned, I don't think we teach enough about grief. It's going to be a universal experience that everybody has. Most young people that I speak to, for a start, they don't know the difference between sadness and depression, Mm. and they certainly don't know anything about stages of grief or the grief journey. So all of those things I think would make rich and and useful information for schools to share. Of course, when I talk to schools about that, they go, and when, Michael, would you like us to teach maths and English? And we've got a very crowded curriculum. So I do get that. Look, we do and they do. And yet, as none of us were prepared for this pandemic, I think it's a catch-up time now for educating and within families, within schools, exactly those aspects that you're talking about that we've all just been floundering through in terms of disappointment and then the cycles of grief, that our life skills, as you say, preparing for adulthood, their life factors and build resilience and we're better off in life as we learn them even now, a bit late from the pandemic, moving forward because there's more to come, of course. And the reason that's so important is the Mission Australia data, which comes out every year, consistently for as long as I can remember have said that the number one problem that young people say they have is coping with stress. So we need to give them the skills and the knowledge and the strategies to manage stress, to distinguish between stress and anxiety. There's so much that we have to teach them and we're really behind the eight ball. We need to get on with it. been talking about this too long. Absolutely. So hopefully, you know, people will listen to this podcast and then seek out these other resources and tools that are free to learn about stress, anxiety, sadness, disappointment, depression, grief, all very different things that we all go through. Look, one of the questions I'm asking all my guests, Michael, is what makes you psyched for life? (laughs) Well, my family and friends, obviously, very, very important. And the fact that every year I set myself a goal and last year's goal was to run a half marathon in Melbourne. This year's goal is to run a half marathon and do a better time. (laughs) So I love sort of challenging myself and I think that's good role modeling for my kids and my family and my friends. Absolutely. And personal goals are one of the big things that got us through the pandemic, the research is showing in in my field. So keep up your personal goals. That's fantastic. (laughs) Thank you very much. I certainly will. (laughs) Thank you so much, Michael. It's been an absolute fascination talking with you today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. To contact Michael Cargreg or to find his resources and programs, go to michaelcargreg.com. That's all one word, no hyphen, michaelcargreg.com, two R's and two G's. The other resources he mentions are Mental Health First Aid Program, Mood Gym, The Brave Program. The links and information for all these resources are in the show notes for this episode. If anything discussed in this podcast has caused you concern or distress, contact your general practitioner or health provider.
To locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society and locate Find a Psychologist Service on 1800 333 or visit au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13 11 14 and Kids Helpline, again 24-7, on 1800-55-1800 and both are free of charge. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me. 